Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Well, let me encourage you to open your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 this morning. We'll be completing the chapter as we read through and then study together verses 48 through 59. So there John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the Jews answered Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Uh, Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word... He will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him. And I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We believe that it is living and active. We pray that you would now make it by your spirit and by your grace to us to live and to act accordingly in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, in the cinematic classic, The Princess Bride, 
I've been here once. I'm going to go here probably 10 more times over the next year or so. Uh, Inigo Montoya believes he is the best swordsman alive. Uh, he's put years into honing his craft and to support his belief. Uh, he's the first line of defense in attempting to ward off the dread pirate Roberts. And you've seen the movie. You know he's quite confident in his ability to win the day. He's in no rush. He's in no rush at all. He gives his opponent time to rest, gives his opponent time to be at his very best, and as the duel plays out, you discover that he's begun the duel by using what? His offhand, his left hand, yeah, his offhand. And yet, we know that the game ultimately is on him. Confident in himself, he proves to be overly confident as his opponent reveals that he too has been using his offhand. You throw in some crazy acrobatics and a greater wit and lighter feet and quicker hands and Inigo Montoya has more than met his match. And it's, uh, it's just before he's mercifully defeated, overwhelmed as he was, that he gives his famously mystified question, who are you? Uh, have you ever squared off with someone who by craft or skill or intellect or force of will or personality simply overwhelmed you? You realize you were, you were bested, you were outmatched, you were in the presence of one who was vastly greater than yourself. Uh, this morning, as we continue our study of Jesus' divine Addressing darkness blind, this is precisely what we're to realize to the highest degree about the man from Nazareth. And in doing so, not fail to understand our options here, that it is either to fight him and lose, or to believe in him and gain everything. And so, let's re-enter the classroom that we exited a week ago, and as the stakes are very high, we have something very critical to consider first, how God seeks the glory of the God-honoring Jesus, starting in verse 48. Now, why has this point, why has this point needed to come about? Okay. You recall that Jesus has not only exposed their unbelief, He's also exposed their faith. And by that, I mean both their recently expressed faith in Him as well as, and this is very notable, their, I say, unbiblical faith in God. And in fact, as Jesus taught in the prior verses, uh, to reject the one is actually to prove the other. To reject Jesus is to prove just how far their faith in God is from the true faith in God. We have to get this. We absolutely have to get this. Jesus did not exactly come to start a new religion. He brought the true one to its fullness. You read the Old Testament rightly, Jesus said, and you'll see that He is the promised Christ of God. And so what He's exposing and pulling up and then snapping off their ancestral roots, all their hope in Abraham, is that their faith is astray, that it is alien, that it is even antagonistic to the faith that's actually prescribed for us in the Word of God. Biblical faith in God 
is indistinguishable and indivisible from a living faith in Jesus. And Jesus, this whole chapter, has really been pressing that hard on them. He's perceived that their so-called faith in Him is really just an addition to their biblical faith in their false god, their Abrahamic stock, how being His descendants they were, they thought, unimpeachably justified as the true children of God. You remember that from a week ago? That was the rock of their salvation. Because, Jesus shows, they had zero actual sense of their sin. Which, because He loves them, Jesus has labored to bring delight for them. Because after all, after all, who will truly believe in the sinless Savior of sinners casting their sinful souls entirely upon His sin-bearing person and work on the cross, who isn't first convinced of their own sinfulness and guilt and helpless separation from God on account of that very sin. So, Jesus is not the one who is separating them from God. Jesus is just showing them what sin had already done and what their sin would continue to do unless they believed truly in Him. He's God's Messiah. He's the one promised to them in the Scriptures. Uh, they, They needed to see the falsity, the falseness of their faith. They needed to see its foreignness to the Scriptures. They needed to see their true spiritual condition which Jesus alone could remedy. And thus, if they would be reconciled to God indeed, they ultimately needed to repent and place not just some of their hope, but all of their hope upon this Jesus in keeping with God's Word. Ultimately, Jesus is teaching, birthrights do not matter. What matters is a new birth. Now, as evidence of their spiritual errancy, they hear all of that and they find Jesus straight against their Judaism. Straight against their God, which of course in their sense, He is. But instead of then seeing the light, we get verse 48. They say what? Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? In other words, in what Jesus has said, these folks here find a view so irreconcilable with their errant brand of Judaism, they find it a godless demon Heresy, Samaritan. Right? The, the, the Samaritans, remember, were half-bred Jews with divergent views about how to relate to God. And we're all familiar with what a demon is. So the accusation, it's not really a question here, the accusation is that Jesus is espousing a demonic subversion of the true faith. 
That's the accusation here. No self-respecting Jewish person would ever say things like Jesus just said in John chapter 8, you must be a madman, Jesus. No, he's the God-man. And if you knew the truth, if you knew your sin, you would fall at his feet with tears in your eyes, bubbling up from your broken heart, and you would beg him for saving mercy. But at any rate, the irony is that it is not Jesus who is espousing a demonic subversion of the true faith. Who is it? It's them. And that's how we get to our point. You see how Jesus answers them in verses 49 and 50. He doesn't even bother with a silly Samaritan charge because what he's teaching is the God's honest truth. It's not novel. It's not heretical and whatnot. It's just biblical. It's just biblical, which unfortunately is all the problem for these religious unbelievers. We're all good with God. We're all good with God now, so don't you, don't you go a-preaching the Word. You, you leave that alone. Well, sorry, the incarnate Word will not be silent. As we see, He cannot be silent. So He discards the notion that He's demonically driven, and He goes the opposite end of that spectrum. Which, by the way, by the way, was, that, was there ever a more thankless job than being God? Again, Samaritan, demonically possessed. And yet Jesus, God in the flesh, navigates not just thanklessness, but outright slander from folks He came to save with the utmost dignity and grace. You see it here? It certainly ought to convict us, I think, how we, with far less reason, tend to snarl at what he takes in stride. How we tend to whine and complain about what he'll take all the way to the cross. Demon-possessed? Like, really? Is that where we are now? Demon-possessed? Come on, folks. No. Quite, quite to the infinite contrary, verse 49, Jesus says, I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. That's no good, okay? Just to be clear on that. Yet, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who does seek it, and he is the judge. And just there, we have come upon an ocean in a teacup. And just of it is this, the problem, as they've asserted, is not with Jesus, it's with them, and it's in them, and it is them. Jesus honors His Father, their God, He just honors Him in truth, 
And on the lips of Jesus, we're to understand that in distinction from normal people like you and me. Jesus honors God as one with utterly unmixed motives. That's what he means here. A a singular, unwavering ambition. The concern of Jesus is one concern. And it is not to seek his own glory ever. It's always to seek the glory of God. And therefore, Jesus is free, totally free, from self-regard. He is totally free from the allure of people's approval. He is totally free to speak God's truth and nothing at all but that truth. And he is free to do it without ever pulling his punches or ever admitting a lie or ever quelling his ministry or ever compromising his mission. Things that we have done and will do to save face with people Jesus never did because he actually lived to keep the smile of one great All he ever did and all he ever said was to the glory of his Father. And, and, and this is an incredible fact. We've got to lay to heart. God, Jesus implies, seeks the glory of Jesus. So Jesus doesn't have to seek His own glory. In this case, He doesn't have to vindicate Himself. He doesn't have to return reviling for reviling, as we so often do. His peace, His vindication, His glory is safe with God. God is for Him. And God will bring it about. We all need to let this reality reckon with us. Do we, do you and I, as sons and daughters of God, I pray, do we take such solace, such comfort in the foreness of God for us? Well, I don't know. Do we patiently endure suffering? Or are we prone to returning evil? For evil. I don't know. Do do, do we seek our own glory? Or do we seek the glory of God? That's not just for Jesus. You go read Paul in 1 Corinthians. In everything you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever. To the glory of God. Or more to Christ here, does does my life, does my labor, does my theology, does my ministry, did they say, God, please let them say, this person seeks the glory of Jesus. Because God seeks the glory of Jesus. So if in any of those things, I'm taking glory over Jesus, it's me that is astray from the heart and from the Word of God, and I need to repent. Because Jesus seeks the glory of God, and God seeks the glory of Jesus, and God is the judge. And if the judge 
seeks the glory of Jesus. What might any expect from him who in any way downplay that glory? What might any expect from him who spit upon that glory? Who dishonor and shame him? Who charge him, as these folks here have, a devilish heretic? Jesus is not the problem. They are. And they need to repent. They need to change their course. In picking up in verse 51, Jesus paves the way for them. It's our second point, how as God seeks the glory of the God-honoring Jesus, eternal life, listen, eternal life thus belongs to anyone who keeps the word of Jesus. It's as if he says, listen, I want this for you. I don't know if you want it for yourself, but I want this for you. You want to be reconciled to God? You want to be justified, though a sinner, before that judge? A proof positive part of the heavenly family with full assurance? Okay. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. It's a sure but conditional promise for those who still now obviously need it. They've heard His Word and they have called Him a satanic Samaritan for it. And that, I'd say, is a far cry from the condition here of keeping His Word. And so again, the conclusion is evident. These quote-unquote believers are quote-unquote believers. They are not believers at all. They're still in a sad state of spiritual death despite, in a superficial sense now, having believed what he said back in verses 21 to 24. Do you remember that? How of all he said and all they seemed to believe, a great part of it was that unless they truly believed in him as a divine Christ who and through the cross, they would die in their sins. Remember that? Well, now, minutes later, this hasn't been like this, you know, this is not uh, sermons. This is not like, there's not seven days in between him talking like it is for us, okay? This is minutes later. It's clear they had not come alive at all spiritually. They had not truly believed him. And so sadly, it's an all too familiar case of how close can you get to salvation without salvation actually ever getting in you. So dear ones, mark again that defining mark of a true child of God. Mark again that defining mark of the soul that really has been saved. Impartially and enduringly they keep The Word of Jesus. It's likely that at least two distinct but indivisible ideas are meant by this. The first relates to the very beginning of the Christian life and the second of necessity to its continuance. The first is about that exercise. Do you remember it? That first exercise of repentance and and faith in what we call the Gospel. The, The Word of God 
about Jesus, who He is and what He's done to save us from our sins. It's about that redeeming life and death and resurrection and His return. You keep that. You keep that, that is. You entrust your sinful soul to the truth and grace of God poured out for us in Him. You cry out to Him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He will save you. Then in there, this promise will be yours. You will never see death. You mean I will not die? That sounds rather inconsistent with reality. I've known Christians to die all the time. I've put them in the ground. Well, I would say you have and you haven't. What Jesus means is, His people will not die in their sins. Okay? There is a death beyond the grave. Indeed, what we're seeing in our passage is that there is a death before the grave. Okay, that is live and in color here in our passage. We see it as spiritual darkness that if continued into the grave will result in eternal condemnation, unending existence, suffering, the infinite penalty, do your sins, your crimes, as it were, against God, which we're to understand from Scripture is the absolute most awful state that could ever have been conceived. And we will have done it to ourselves and ourselves deserved it. When in life we could have been really delivered from it. Jesus died for our sins. When He died on the cross, He was laying down His life as a sinless substitute for sinners like you and me. He was, as John the Baptist said at the beginning of the Gospel, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now that He has done it, now that it is finished, now that we have a full atonement for sin and for sinners, what do you have to do? He's already told us. You need only keep His Word. You need only believe Him. And forgive Him. All your sins, you will never see, feel the sting of death. You may die, but it will not for you be death to die. For to die not in your sins, but in Christ, is to immediately enter, Paul says, the fullness of eternal life in His ineffable presence. Uh, The soul truly lives in that day while the body only sleeps in anticipation of the resurrection from the dead. And so there's that. There's that. Then it follows. Listen now. It follows. There must be this. A life lived now for Jesus. This was the focus a week ago. But it won't hurt, I don't think, to circle around again and say, 
we really can know that we have eternal life. How great is that? Okay. Question is, how do, we, how do we discover this? The answer is, in our text, by keeping the word of Jesus. By doing the word of Jesus. And by doing the word of Jesus all the way to death. We need to lay the heart. You want assurance of eternal life. Well, assurance of eternal life goes hand in hand with obedience to Christ. They rise and they fall together. There is the propensity within Christianity to rest our assurance elsewhere, maybe even anywhere, but in ongoing, inherently costly, glad-hearted faithfulness to the word of our inestimably worthy Lord and Savior, Jesus. We rest it perhaps in family ties, like they're doing, or in making so many Sunday appearances, or maybe in past participation in some uh, Christian rite or, or ordinance. And by those things, we then excuse away plain patterns of sin that are going on in our lives. We dream up a scenario in which Christ died for us, but we need not then live for Him. As if His death only purchased our justification, but it didn't actually purchase our regeneration or our sanctification. As if it only dealt with the penalty of sin while leaving us completely and totally under the power of sin. Dear ones, I want you to hear me. That is a limited view of the sacrifice of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will not fly biblically. The assurance that you are an heir of glory, that, as Jesus says here, you will never see death, okay? the assurance of that is in the evidence that you are an heir of grace. As He said in our text, that you keep His Word. That you believe the Gospel, and just so, you live a life that is worthy of the Gospel, Philippians 1.27. So yes, yes, absolutely, the sinner is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But where that really does land in a person's soul, it's never alone in this sense. That person is a new creation who desires nothing more than to follow the Lamb of God wherever He goes. Is that our mantra? Is that our mark? Our feet hit the ground in the morning. <laughs> Maybe we have coffee first. <clears throat> but then we say, what joy! How might I keep the word of Christ today? Let me count the ways. How might I beat temptation into submission? How might I walk in ever-increasing, sweeter fellowship 
with Jesus? How might I follow His every step today? How might I prove, because I want to prove that I am an heir of grace and of eternal life? And I would just say, church, may that revival begin in us today. Please, Lord. All right. What tragedy then in verses 52 and 53? Having their faith exposed as it was, provided as it does opportunity to repent, what do they do? They double down instead. Now they say, we know you have a demon. Abraham died, but he was a keeper of the word of God. And the prophets, they, they died, but they, they declared the word of God. But you say, your word, if kept, is death-defeating. Who do you think you are? Just who do you make yourself out to be? In the words of Inigo Montoya, who are you? It's obvious to them that he's claiming person and work superiority to these Jewish elites. Here's the problem. It is not obvious to them that that in no way means he's wrong. Had not God promised a greatest someone in Scripture from the beginning? He did. Greater than Abraham? Greater than Moses? Absolutely. <laughs> Greater than every patriarch and every prophet? Yes. And here we are. Here He is. His name is Jesus. And Jesus says, listen folks, again, verses 54 and 55, the God who you claim as your own is, in truth, not yours. He's my Father. And He glorifies me. So that in effect, the reason you are not glorifying me is because you're not His child. He's not your Father. You don't know Him, but I do know Him. And so while I won't glorify myself, I must be myself. I must tell the truth because unlike you, I'm not a liar. Wow. So here goes. I know God. Proof I keep. His word. So that if you knew Him, if you really knew Him, you would all out rejoice in Me. In other words, He's the greatest one. He's the promised one. Jesus is God's Christ. And so, for a moment, He comes to what we think is His Apex. <laughs> What's been the rock of their salvation throughout chapter 8? It's been, we are descended from Abraham. Rock. And Jesus has been just chipping away. Chipping away at that. Talking truth and, and faith and sin and freedom from sin and new birth and on and on, but now in verse 56, he puts away that little tool and he brings out the sledgehammer. 
your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. (laughs) He does not say that Abraham was gladdened by some generic thought of the Messianic age. He says, Abraham saw my day. And it thrilled his soul. Which is to say, guys, if, if your father Abraham was present right now, if he was standing amongst you, he would bless God for me. He would scold all of you. He would bless God for me because in me he would see in the flesh all the sights he saw of Christ. Jesus would not disappoint Abraham. To wit, you need to let go of that root and you need to reattach yourself to it in truth. You need to get off that rock It's sinking sand. And you need to get in this rock. And you need to build your life upon it. This life-giving word like Abraham did. And then you'll be children of Abraham. Then you'll be children of God. Then you'll be saved from sin and death and hell. And so, in what friend are you trusting to save you today? God seeks the glory of the God-honoring Jesus. Thus, eternal life belongs to anyone who keeps the word of Jesus. So then, Jesus is God our Savior. Do not drive Him away. That's point number three. Now, maybe, as we try to cultivate here at the church, You're a special kind of attentive. And you say, whoa there, Brian. Have we we actually gotten there yet? Uh, Have we seen in the text of Scripture that Jesus, in being the Christ of God, I grant, is further God, our Savior? The answer is yes. Only now, Jesus makes it unmistakably clear. He hasn't put away the sledgehammer quite yet. His audience is trying to make sense. Verse 57 of what he's just said. (laughs) Abraham's been dead for two millennia. (laughs) Oh man, you're not yet 50 years old. Technically, you're still a young man. As a 40-year-old now, I think 33 is pretty young. And have you seen Abraham? No. That's not what Jesus said. He said Abraham saw his day. So you're just seeing like they don't have ears to hear. It's not what he said. But as it is nonetheless true, they have just opened up a massive can that he feels like he has to clarify. And he is ready to clarify it. It's the great verse 58. Look there. It says, Jesus said to them, oh man, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
Talk about meeting your match. It's an explicit claim to deity. Can you imagine this? I mean, just in the mind's eye, think of it. See a man. See a man. And see a man opening his, his mouth. He has a mouth that he can speak with. See him opening that thing. And then hearing him say with episodes like the burning bush on speed dial, truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It is the grandest mystery in the universe. Jesus, the young man from Nazareth, was equally cognizant, aware of the fact that he was God from God. True light from true light. The eternal Lord of all. That, I mean, just, just forget Abraham. That before the universe was made, that before anything was made, Jesus was and is and will always be the Son of God. Abraham, like all else, came into existence. Okay. Before that, Jesus, by uniting His divine nature to a fully human nature accomplished in the Incarnation, can say He simply and eternally existed. It's incredible. You're not yet 50, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus basically says, of course I have. I'm God. And to show how far that is from being sinful arrogance, as we might think it is, let's just turn that around. Turn it the other way and see He's God, and yet He's here. He came into the world. He condescended infinitely to you and me just by becoming one of us. Set aside the cross for a second. Just in becoming a person. A created thing. Okay? Though he could have, he did not stay in heaven. He was not above. God, the Son, was not above coming down to you and me. <laughs> the second person of the Trinity took on our humanity and would take on then our sin and our guilt and our shame on a God-forsaken tree precisely to rise victorious over it all, death included, and to lead a host of captives now set free with Him to the real promised land. That Jesus is I am means most pertinently He is the only real Savior of sinners. Don't drive Him away. But just when you thought things couldn't get any sadder, we get verse 59. How upon hearing this, and make no mistake, they get it. They picked up stones to kill him, to throw at him, and kill him dead. But Jesus hid himself and he went out of the temple. Now, dear ones, the Son of God, 
took on flesh and dwelt among us to save us. And what I want us to hear at this point is that he did that knowing it meant having a body that could be stoned. (laughs) He did that knowing being a man would mean that he would have to hide himself for a time, right? Until the right time, which was the cross. It's a tragedy that the one who came to be our hiding place had to hide from us. That the one who came to be our our meeting place with God had to run out of the meeting place of God, the temple, that prefigured Him. But you want to know what the real tragedy is here? The real tragedy in the text is not their attempt to stone Jesus. The real tragedy in the text is the stony hearts from which, in Christ, God Himself withdraws. What darkness of night overtakes the room where the light of the world and lamp of God is driven away to another place? It is terribly burdening to witness just how enslaved people really are to sin and to Satan. They have called the Savior satanic. Salvation from sin, not of God. God the Son, a blasphemer deserving of immediate execution. It is a peculiar skill of the devil to convince lost souls that there's no salvation in Jesus. That indeed the Christ of God is really an enemy of God. And even that Jesus is the devil. And as he diverts their attention to that lie, he does so. Why? Just so that he himself might carry on unseen to keep those very souls in the dark. Sin is good. That's your your precious. Don't let anyone, especially Jesus, get in the way of this good thing that we've got going between you and me. No. Drive him away. Friend, don't listen to that junk. That is the voice of a slave master. That's the sure path to dying in your sins when Jesus came and paved the way by His cross to reconcile you to God forevermore. Put down the stones. Put down the stones and say to that rock of ages cleft for me, please Jesus, let me hide myself in Thee. Believe in Him. Beloved, in his encounter with the dread pirate Roberts, Inigo Montoya was overwhelmed. Uh, He fell to his knees admitting defeat and assuming death, and yet he received what? You remember? 
he received mercy. He was granted life. And in return for it, what did he do? He he gave his life to the one who had spared it. He became his friend. We might even say he became kind of his disciple. He went wherever he went. It's no coincidence that the light of the world calls his people also the light of the world. He knows what the life he gives us effects in us. He knows what it creates. If you are truly my disciples, you will abide in my word. You will keep in step with me, and you will keep in step with me all the way to the end. And to that end, maybe today, Maybe today, what you and I need most of all is not just to sort of hike up our pants and give it the old collegiate try, you know, give it our very best. Maybe what it is, maybe what needs to happen is we just need to be bested. We need to be outmatched. We need to be overwhelmed by Jesus again. Maybe it's to stand in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene, and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful we sing, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. (laughs) Well, may He who died for us secure our lives to Him. Let's pray. We thank You for Your Word. You are worthy of our worship, our praise, our lives. May he do great and glorious things in our hearts through the preaching of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name.